The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Healthcare insight might um, not be always the appropriate word for the material or description of the material that we talk about in these uh, presentations, because we've been talking about a lot of world issues, a lot of politics, internal, domestic, uh, foreign policy, um, uh, administration, um, uh, uh, nominees and votes in Congress, all those sorts of things we've talked about. But this is now the Easter uh, period for 2022. And I've had a couple of presentations that some of you, I hope, have listened to about the existence of God, the um, uh, the resurrection, especially during this Easter time. It's the most important and critical um, part of the Christian religion is the um, uh, uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ to prove that he was divine, to add to the whole um, reason why Christianity has developed and lasted for thousands of years now. But today I want to take a, um, a different view of uh, Christianity uh, during this Easter period of time. I think I want to continue to focus on this for this week and maybe a couple of other weeks. Um, and what I have used in the past few presentations around uh, the, the belief in God is... Um, uh, William Lane Craig, he is what's called an apologist, um, but apologist is not apologizing for uh, faith, but defending faith. If you look at the root uh, uh, Greek term for um, the apologetics. And so what I want to, want to do today is um, is take a, a slight shift and show that the belief in God is across many professions and perspectives. Uh, William Lane Craig uh, identified himself as a philosopher, as a theologian, and tried to bring those two perspectives into play. He was not a, um, a pastor. He was not trying to bring it from a religious point of view, but he was bringing facts and figures and deductive reasoning to the logic of God existing. Today, I want to take a very interesting uh, trip uh, in this presentation uh, with a gentleman uh, called uh, Francis Collins. Now, some of you may uh, recall that name because Francis Collins is the head of the National Institute of Health, and he has also was one of the critical um, uh, players in the development of the Human Genome Project. So I don't know how you get any more scientific than Francis Collins. So for those of you who might be listening to this that are are technically oriented or scientifically oriented, here's a story of a scientist in the purest sense, taking a look at Christianity on the basic questions of, is there a God first? And then if there's a God, was Jesus Christ a God in human form? And Francis Collins looks at this from a very scientific viewpoint from his experience and tries to draw connections between what science agrees and what a religion believes. So, he crosses that barrier where many of us may think that there's a barrier, there's a conflict between science and faith, science and religion, but there doesn't need to be, and that's the story of his journey in life to move from being an atheist 
to becoming a very strong Christian and retaining his purity in the sense of science. And he uses a scientific methodology to prove to himself that the best possible answer for is there a God, most likely answer is that the answer is yes. So I want to um, uh, bring in uh, Dr. Collins to talk a little bit about his background here, and then we'll get into his presentation, and I'll ask him questions through this kind of dialogue that we have on this uh, podcast uh, about why he believes what he believes and what was it about the scientific evidence that he studied that brought him around to being a Christian and move away from being an atheist. We are here to talk about big questions. Maybe the biggest question of all, does God exist? Things that have led me from being an atheist to becoming a believer and a follower of Jesus. And also explain to you how I see no conflict between that perspective and that of a scientist who is rigorous in his views of data and won't allow you to put one over on me when it comes to views of nature, but who also sees that the study of nature is not all there is. Thank you for that brief um, description of where your faith come, came from, uh, Dr. Collins. Um, our audience probably doesn't know, or maybe some do, that um, you wrote a book that you call The Language of God, and it kind of outlines a lot of the thinking that you have about how you move from being an atheist to uh, being a Christian. Uh, but you've been involved in some of these other areas, like the Genome Project. Could you tell the audience uh, about your pure science uh, uh, career that really led you to use that same methodology to study the existence of God? I would like to start, perhaps, by telling you a little bit about the science that I've had the privilege of being involved in, which is the study of our human DNA instruction book, The Human Genome. So we are going to talk about this molecule, this amazing double helix shown here spilling out of the nucleus of the cell, carrying the information that needs to be passed from parent to child, generation after generation, by the series of these chemical bases, here abbreviated A, C, G, and T. And it is the order of those letters that basically must be there in order to provide the instructions to take each organism from its original uh, rather simple beginnings as a single cell to a rather fancy organism like a human being. The genome of an organism is its entire set of DNA instructions. The human genome adds up to 3.1 billion of those letters. Dr. Collins, I know you studied this and you developed and outlined the entire genome project. So we have these millions, uh, billions of uh, possibilities out there. What does that mean for the layman in terms of their own health, their own heredity? Uh, what does it mean for them passing on to their kids or their uh, grandkids uh, with this? What does this mean in terms of evolution? Uh, maybe as Darwin was saying, this is part of the evolutionary process scientifically proven that you're stating here today, but that I know you say you're a Christian, so we'll get into why is that not a conflict with your with your faith beliefs. Um, and we have that information now, which is a pretty amazing thing to say, and you have it, even before we knew it sequenced, you had it already, and it's inside each cell of your body, and every time the cell divides, you've got to copy the whole thing. And occasionally mistakes get made, and if they get made during your life, well, they may not cause much trouble, but if they happen to get made in a particularly vulnerable place, they might start you on a path towards cancer. 
And if a mistake gets made in passing the DNA from parent to child, well, then that child might end up with some kind of a birth defect. But once in a very long time, that change might actually be beneficial. And that, of course, is how evolution works. With gradual change applied to this DNA sequence over long periods of time, resulting in what Darwin put forward uh, by the means of natural selection, a gradual evolution and the introduction of new species. So what I'm hearing you say, Dr. Collins, is we have all this great information now that we've been able to see and understand the human body and the workings through the genome project, and it doesn't conflict with uh, evolution, and I think you're going to probably talk about that a little bit more uh, during this hour, but that it also is providing us great information about how to deal with some of the mutations that might occur or actually help to cure some of the diseases that we would otherwise uh, face without proper medical care. So, Tell us about the dream of the um, project uh, coming to fruition from the healthcare perspective. The dream is beginning to come true of how this is going to apply for medical benefit because with these tools from the Genome Project, we have been able increasingly, and especially in the last couple of years, to identify specific genetic risk factors for cancer, for heart disease, for diabetes, for asthma, for schizophrenia, for a long list of conditions that previously were very difficult to sort out. And in circumstances where knowing you're at high risk allows you to reduce that risk by changing your diet or your lifestyle or your medical surveillance, this opportunity to practice better prevention on an individualized basis is getting pretty exciting. And this is called personalized medicine. And it applies not only to this kind of prevention, but if you do get sick, it may provide you with a better chance to get the right drug at the right dose instead of something that doesn't work or perhaps even gives you a toxic side effect. And that's what pharmacogenomics is about. And perhaps the biggest payoff in the long term, although also the longest pipeline, is to take those discoveries of the real fundamentals of what causes these diseases and turn those into insights that will lead us to therapeutics, be they gene therapies or drug therapies, that are really targeted to the fundamental problem instead of some secondary effect. And we're beginning to see that now, especially in the field of cancer. We will see much more of it over the coming decade. And I would predict that in another 15 years, medicine will be radically different because of all of these developments stimulated by the Genome Project and with the scientific community plunging in uh, with great energy and creativity to make the most of the opportunity. Okay, Dr. Craig, you have uh, clearly uh, established your credentials. Uh, You've been involved in some projects that I'm not even sure I could pronounce the names and words of the uh, research that you've done. And um, I'm sure many in our audience would, would know those, but many others would not. So now that we've used this segment to establish your credentials and the fact that you have gone from the scientific uh, upbringing and training that you've had from being an atheist to being uh, religious, would you talk about those two different worldviews, um, scientific versus spiritual, and how you brought that together and we'll get in a lot more detail, I think, in the next um, next segments. But how did you bring it together, and what do you see in terms of uh, one worldview versus the other one, and conflicts uh, potentially? Uh, from science. Okay, those are two worldviews, the scientific and the spiritual. Do you have to choose? Do you have to basically throw in your lot with one or the other and neglect the other one? Or is there a possibility here 
of being someone who could merge these two, not necessarily building a firewall between them, but actually having both of those perspectives uh, within your own experience. I think many people today are arguing that these worldviews are at war and that there is no way to reconcile them. That has not been my experience, and that's what I particularly would like to share. Well, Dr. Craig, I wanted to set this first segment up so the audience could understand your scientific background, the deep, deep research into the the physical nature of human beings, going all the way down to the genome project to understand the bits and pieces that make us up, make us different from every other animal, make us different from anything else in this world as thinking, caring human beings that are different from other animals. So you've seen that up close, closer than anybody. And I wanted to establish that. So uh, if our audience will stay with us, I want to get into your spiritual journey uh, now that we know and understand your complete credentials on your scientific journey, because I think it's that spiritual journey that will prove the point that there is no real conflict between science and and spirituality or the belief in God or even the belief that Jesus Christ came to earth in the human form of God. So stick around. We're going to take a quick commercial. We're going to come back and get into the further story of Dr. Francis Collins. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking with uh, Dr. Uh, Francis Collins, who is a scientist extraordinaire. He worked on the Genome Project. He described in the first segment of this hour that um, he was an atheist who came along with a scientific uh, mindset to study and try to understand whether God exists or not. Uh, he's not approaching it from a religious standpoint in his life at that juncture. He's trying to use a scientific method, uh, maybe not totally prove God, but prove that God is the most likely answer to fundamental questions 
about the universe, about biology, about evolution, about the things that he has worked with his entire life, including the Genome Project, the specific uh, issues that develop a human being and makes us different, makes us unique, but at the same time uh, has some commonalities throughout the um, uh, the animal um, uh, kingdom. Why are we different? Why are we not different? So he's not approaching it from a theological standpoint, but from a, a scientific standpoint. And so, um, Dr. Collins, could you give us a little bit of that background? And I know some might say, well, that's his testimony, but you're not presenting it as a religious testimony, but as a scientific testimony and explanation of the research that you did. So can you take us down that path, please? So I think I owe you at this point a little bit more of a description about my spiritual perspective. I described my scientific uh, pathway. Many of you might have assumed that the only scientists who were uh, those who learned faith in childhood uh, would have it later on, but that's not my story. I was raised in a family uh, that was wonderfully unconventional. Uh, My father had been a folk song collector in the 1930s in North Carolina. Uh, After the war, he and my mother did the 60s thing, except it was still the 40s. I don't think it involved drugs, but they did buy a dirt farm and tried to live off the land. (laughs) And uh, that didn't go very well. Um, I discovered that that was not a credible way to have enough income to serve a growing family. I was born on that farm. By that time, my father had gone back to teaching at the local college, and my mother had started writing plays. And they founded a theater uh, in the Grove of Oak Trees up above our farmhouse, which I'm happy to say is about to have its 54th consecutive summer season. So I got raised in this wonderful mix of ideas, of music, of theater, the arts. My mother taught me at home until the sixth grade, which was also very unconventional in the 1950s. And she taught me to love the experience of learning new things. But the one thing I didn't learn much about was faith. My parents didn't really denigrate religion, but they didn't find it very relevant. But Collins, I think many in the audience can relate to that upbringing, that religion may not have been very important, very relevant, uh, was something that was sort of out there for other people, and you kind of went on with your life and the issues that you had to deal with for providing for a family or getting an education in mathematics and science and literature and whatever, but uh, a real study of religion or a real belief there uh, was not something that many people uh, grew up with. Now, some did, and many of our audience, I'm sure, have faith-based um, parents uh, that trained them and brought them up in churches, and they had all the kind of um, discussions of the catechisms and whatever else to, um, uh, to bring people to faith at a young age. But that was not your story, but I think your story is not uh, unique. I think it's a story that many in this audience and many around the world have have experienced. So the next question then is you weren't brought up that way, but you're obviously in the education very strongly. What happened when you went to college and you got into an environment where people were debating and discussing some of these issues? And so when I got to college, I had those conversations that one has, even though I might have had some spiritual glimmers along the way, they quickly disappeared in those dormitory conversations where there's always an atheist who's determined to put forward that argument about why your faith is actually flawed, and mine wasn't even there at all. So it was pretty easy uh, for the resident atheist uh, to dismiss my leanings of any sort. 
I was probably an agnostic at that point, although I didn't know the word. And then I went off to graduate school and studied physical chemistry and very much was involved in a theoretical approach to trying to understand the behavior of atoms and molecules. And my faith really then rested upon second-order differential equations, which are pretty cool, by the way. But uh, just the same, I became increasingly of a reductionist mode uh, and a materialist mode. And I had even less tolerance then for hearing information of a spiritual sort and considered that to be irrelevant. Some uh, some cast, uh, appropriately should be cast off information left over from an earlier time. Dr. Collins, it sounds like that when you went to college and these questions of of spirituality and faith came up, that you were not um, receptive to uh, a Christian worldview, uh, but that you were uh, not fighting the atheists, so you considered yourself just agnostic and not really paying a lot of attention, not wanting to spend your time thinking about these big issues at that point in time. But somewhere along the way in your life, it changed. Did it change when you went off to medical school and got your MD along with a, a PhD later? Um, what was the point that things turned for you? I arrived in medical school as an atheist, but it didn't last. Because in that third year of medical school, I found myself, as one does, taking care of patients. Wonderful people with terrible illnesses. Illnesses that medicine was not going to be able to solve in many instances. People who saw the approach of death, knowing what was coming, and to my surprise, seemed to be at peace about it because of their faith. That was puzzling. And as I tried to imagine myself in that situation, I knew I would not be at peace. I would be terrified. And that was a bit disturbing, but I tried to put it out of my mind until one afternoon when a wonderful elderly woman who was my patient who had very advanced heart disease that we had run out of options for and who knew her life was coming to a close, told me in a very simple, sincere way about her faith and how that gave her courage and hope and peace about what was coming. And as she finished that description, she looked at me sort of quizzically as I sat there silently, feeling a little embarrassed, and she said, Doctor, I've told you about my faith, and we've talked about my family, and I thought maybe you might say something. And then she asked me the most simple question, Doctor, what do you believe? Nobody had ever asked me that question before, not like that, not in such a simple, sincere way. And I realized I didn't know the answer. I felt uneasy. I could feel my face flushing. I wanted to get out of there. The ice was cracking under my feet. Everything was all of a sudden now muddled by this simple question. Doctor, what do you believe? So that troubled me, and I thought about it a little bit and realized what the problem was. Dr. Collins, that is a, a critical point in your life that most of us at some point or other have either somebody like you mentioned outside ask that question of ourselves, or we come around uh, trying to answer that question uh, that we ask ourselves. So what was your finding at that point? Because this is critical. If anybody out here listening to this program gets to that point where they're actually asking themselves, what do you believe I think it's important that you say you found the answer 
And maybe that's the same answer that many people in this audience uh, might uh, find of value in their own journey uh, towards a faith-based life uh, perspective worldview. I was a scientist, or at least I thought I was, and scientists are supposed to make decisions after they look at the data, after they look at the evidence. I had made a decision that there was no God, and I'd never really thought about looking at the evidence. That didn't seem like a good thing. It was the decision that I wanted the answer to be, but I had to admit I didn't really know whether I had chosen the answer on the basis of reason or whether because it was a convenient form of uh, perhaps willful blindness uh, to the evidence. I wasn't sure there was any evidence, but I figured I'd better go find out because I didn't want to be in that spot again. Dr. Collins, I wanted to jump in here for a second because you became open to the idea because somebody asked you a question that as a scientist you didn't have the answers and you did some self-reflection that you had never looked for the evidence. You had never applied your scientific methodology to the study of whether or not a God exists. And that's the critical point at which anybody um, trying to answer that question has to approach, has to be aware of that they are just putting it aside and not thinking about it because they don't want to think about it or it's too hard to think about or they've got a certain worldview that they just don't want to be disturbed with. So tell us what happened at that point in your life, the critical juncture of you saying, I've got to go out and really study this issue as a scientist. So what did I do? Well, you know, I figured there are those world religions. What do they believe? I'd better find out. And I tried to read through some of those sacred texts, and I got totally confused and frustrated. So at a loss, I knocked on the door of a minister who lived down the road from me in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and said, I don't know what these people are talking about, but I figure it's time for me to learn. So, okay, you must be a believer. At least I hope you are. You're a minister. Let me ask you some questions. So I asked him a bunch of probably blasphemous questions, and he was gracious about that. And after a while said, you know, you're on a journey here trying to figure out what's true. You're not the first one. And in fact, I've got a book here written by somebody who went on that same journey from an academic perspective. In fact, it was a pretty distinguished Oxford scholar. He found around him there were people who were believers, and he was puzzled about that. And he set about to try to figure out why people believe and figured that he could shoot them down. And, well, why don't you read the book and see what happened? So he pulled this little book off the shelf, and I took it home and began to read. So, Dr. Collins, the value here is that you asked for help. You went to a source you thought could give it to you, and he pulls the book off the shelf so that you got to know you're not the first one to go through this. There's somebody else who has done this. Much like your testimony here today, your story, your life story, you're going from an atheist to a Christian, uh, might help others who are on that same journey. But you found it through a book. Tell us more about that book. And in the first two or three pages, I realized that my arguments against faith were really those of a schoolboy. They had no real substance. And the thoughtful reflections of this Oxford scholar, whose name, of course, is C.S. Lewis, Uh, made me realize there was a great depth of thinking and reason that could be applied to the question of God. 
And that was a surprise. I had imagined faith and reason were at opposite poles. And here was this deep intellectual who was convincing me quickly, page by page, that actually reason and faith go hand in hand, though faith has the added uh, component of revelation. Dr. Craig, your life story and your experiences to come to Christ, at least being open at this point, is very fascinating. But we've got to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and finish the presentation of somebody who traveled from being an atheist to being a Christian using the scientific method by one of the most prominent scientists in the United States. We'll be right back after this commercial. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking to Dr. Francis Collins, one of the most uh, eminent uh, scientists in this country working on the Genome Project. He's actually brilliant in so many different ways, and you would think scientists are are more agnostic or atheist because we seem in this culture to think that you can't be both a scientific uh, review of facts and figures and have a, a religious and a faith or a spiritual background as well. And he's telling us a story about he, as a scientist who's an atheist, came to believe in that the existence of a God through scientific research on his perspective that it may not be complete 100% uh, proof, but is the most likely answer of all the other options that are out there. So we've gone through um, his childhood where he didn't have much of um, uh, a faith-based education from his parents. He went to college and he was still an agnostic, went to graduate school and then ultimately to medical school and really started to open up and think about uh, the basic question of life. Uh, why are we here? Is there a God? Is there not a God? Uh, how do you uh, accept it, except on faith, is there some scientific proof? So now he's in medicine, and he's ha- had this question asked by one of his patients, what do you believe in? And he's on the search. He goes to uh, his uh, local pastor and asks the question. He's been given a book by C.S. Lewis. So what's the next step after you got the book? How did this progress, uh, this fascinating story of your finding faith? Uh, Dr. Collins, tell us about, about that aspect the next um, 
phase of your discovery of Christ and that there is, in fact, a God that um, many in the scientific community might dispute, but you believe that there is a God now. Over the course of the next year, kicking and screaming most of the way, because I did not want this to turn out the way that it seemed to be turning out, (laughs) I began to realize that the evidence uh, for the existence of God, while not proof, was actually pretty interesting. And it certainly made me realize that atheism would no longer be for me an acceptable choice, that it was the least rational of the options. I won't go through the whole chronology as it actually happened, but let me summarize for you the kinds of arguments that ultimately brought me around to the position of recognizing that belief in God was an entirely satisfying intellectually uh, event but also something that I was increasingly discovering I had a spiritual hunger for. So you had this hunger, this desire, this something innate in you, wanted to discover the truth about something, just like a scientist would. And what did you find? How did it turn into the kind of strong faith that you had today? And interestingly, some of the pointers to God had been in front of me all along, coming from the study of nature. And I hadn't really thought about them, but here they were. Here's one which seems like an obvious statement, but maybe it's not so obvious. There is something instead of nothing. No reason that should be. This phrase of Wigner, the Nobel laureate in physics, caught my eye because I had been involved, of course, as a graduate student working with quantum mechanics with Schrodinger's equation, And one of the things that had appealed to me so much about mathematics and physics and chemistry was how it was that this particular kind of depiction of matter and energy works. I mean, it really works well. And a theory that is correct often turns out to be simple and beautiful. And why should that be? Why should mathematics be so unreasonably effective in describing nature? Hmm. There's the Big Bang. The fact that the universe had a beginning, as virtually all scientists are now coming to the conclusion, about 13.7 billion years ago, in an unimaginable singularity, where the universe, smaller than a golf ball, suddenly appeared and then began flying apart and has been flying apart ever since. And we can calculate that singularity by noticing just how far those galaxies are receding from us and things like the background microwave radiation, the echo of that Big Bang. And of course, that presents a difficulty because our science cannot look back beyond that point. And it seems that something came out of nothing. Well, nature isn't supposed to allow that. So if nature is not able to create itself... How did the universe get here? You can't postulate that that was created by some natural force or you haven't solved the problem because then, okay, what created that natural force? So the only plausible, it seemed to me, explanation is that there must be some supernatural force that did the creating. And of course, that force would not need to be limited by space or even by time. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. So, all right, let's imagine there is a creator, let's call that creator God, who is supernatural, who's not bounded by space, not bounded by time, and is a pretty darn good mathematician. And it's starting to make some sense here. Well, God must also be an incredible physicist. Because another thing I began to realize by a little more reading is that there is this 
phenomenal fine-tuning of the universe that makes complexity and therefore life possible. So let me jump in again real quickly. So the complexity on this particular point that you're talking about, the complexity of the world, the complexity of life, that you look down into the genome, the DNA of people, you studied the uh, the biology of, of humans and of other animals, and it's that complexity uh, was one of the reasons that brought you around, that there had to be something else. There had to be this precise tuning of physical constants in the universe, uh, things like gravitational pull and other constants that that were uh, considered by great scientists, that all of that had to have some um, some great powerful force behind it, that God is the best explanation of that. Um, is that what you're trying to tell us? And give us maybe some examples of those kinds of physical constants that just don't have any other explanation. And if they weren't as precise, then we might not even exist. Those of you who study uh, physics and chemistry will know that there's a whole series of laws that govern the behavior of matter matter and energy. There are simple, beautiful equations, but they have constants in them, like the gravitational constant or the speed of light. And you cannot derive at the present time the value of those constants. They are what they are. They're givens. You have to do the experiment and measure them. Well, suppose they were a little different. Would that matter? Would anything change in our universe if the gravitational constant was a little stronger or a little weaker? So that calculation got done, particularly in the 1970s, uh, by Barrow and Tipler. And the answer was astounding, that if you take any of these 15 constants and you tweak them just a tiny little bit, the whole thing doesn't work anymore. Take gravity, for instance. If gravity was just one part in about 10 billion weaker than it actually is, then after the Big Bang, there would be insufficient gravitational pull to result in the coalescence of stars and galaxies and planets and you and me. And you'd end up, therefore, with an infinitely expanding sterile universe. If gravity was just a tiny bit stronger, well, things would coalesce all right, but a little too soon. And the Big Bang would be followed after a while by a big crunch. And we would not have the chance to appear uh, because the timing wouldn't be right. And that's just one example. You can't look at that data and not marvel at it. It is astounding to see the knife edge of improbability upon which our existence exists. So you think these constants were designed by a god to make this perfect universe that would allow things uh, to grow, exist, and for humans even to be there. Are there other thoughts that others have proposed that you've considered as alternatives? Well, I can think of three possibilities. First of all, maybe theory will someday tell us that these constants have to have the value they have, that there is some a priori reason for that. Most physicists I talk to don't think that's too likely. There might be relationships between them that have to be maintained, but not the whole thing. A second possibility, perhaps we are one of an almost infinite series of other universes that have different values of those constants, And, of course, we have to be in the one where everything turned out right or we wouldn't be having this conversation. So that's the multiverse hypothesis, and it is a defensible one as long as you're willing to accept the fact that you will probably never be able to observe those infinite series of other parallel universes. So that requires quite a leap of faith. The third possibility, 
is that this is intentional, that these constants have the value they do because that creator God, who is a good mathematician, also knew that there was an important set of dials to set here if this universe that was coming into being was going to be interesting. So take those three possibilities, and which of them seems most plausible? Apply Occam's razor, if you will, which says that the simplest explanation is most likely correct. Well, I come down on number three, especially because I've already kind of gotten there in terms of the other arguments about the idea of a creator. Dr. Collins, those are great um, scientific issues, especially the Big Bang that I think most people can uh, tie into, because that's so well accepted by scientists that it started off with nothing and created something. So that something had to be a powerful being, a powerful force. And the best explanation is that there was a God that actually created that. It, we don't get something out of nothing. But I believe in reading your book, you had another issue that uh, I think you referred to it as the moral law, that there's something within us that knows right from wrong. Can you explain to our audience that part uh, that fit into uh, your uh, transition from an atheist to a Christian? Well, now we come back to Lewis in that first chapter of Mere Christianity, which is called Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. And here what is being talked about is the moral law. I didn't take philosophy in college, so I didn't really quite know what this was all about. But as I began to recognize what the argument was, it rang true. It rang true in a really startling way. One of those things where you realize, I've known about this all my life, but I've never really quite thought about it. So what's the argument? The argument is that we humans are unique in the animal kingdom by apparently having a law that we are under, although we seem free to break it because uh, that happens every day. And the law is that there's something called right and there's something called wrong, and we're supposed to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. Again, we break that law. When we do, what do we do? We make an excuse, which only means we believe the law must be true and we're trying to be let off the hook. Now, people will quickly object, now wait a minute. I can think of human cultures that did terrible things. How can you say they were under the moral law? Well, if you go and study those cultures, you will find out that the things that we consider terrible were in their column called right because of various cultural expectations. So clearly the moral law is universal, but it is influenced in terms of particular actions and how they size up in the right and wrong assessment. Dr. Collins, let me stop you there uh, because you are getting into the area of philosophy as opposed to science, but I think a scientific view of philosophy is going to be important to our audience as well. So let me just stop there. We're going to come back to this after this quick commercial break. I hope you're finding this fascinating and want to hear the rest of the story of how a scientist went from being an atheist to being a strong Christian believer. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors 
for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. And today we have been talking to Dr. Francis Collins, the eminent scientist who um, is indisputably one of the world's greatest thinkers. Now, that's in science, and he ultimately turned his attention towards spirituality and the question of, is there a God? What does he believe using a scientific method? So I want to continue with this. And at the end of the last session, we were talking about the moral law. And that's not exactly a scientific thing, but he's looking at it from a scientific perspective of researching what's been going on in the world in different cultures. So let's go back to that. And Dr. Collins, tell us more about this moral law and the differences you might see from culture to culture or what's ingrained in us, you think, by God telling us to know what is right and what is wrong. Well, the moral law sometimes calls us to do some pretty dramatic things, particularly in terms of altruism, where you do something sacrificial for somebody else. Now, what about that? People may argue, and they have, and they will continue to, that this can all be explained by evolution, and those are useful arguments to look at. So, for instance, if you're being altruistic uh, to your own family, you can see how that might make sense from an evolutionary perspective, because they share your DNA. So if you're helping their DNA survive, well, it's yours too. And so that makes sense from a Darwinian argument about reproductive fitness. If you are being nice to somebody in expectation, they'll be nice to you later. A reciprocal form of altruism, well, okay, you could see how that might also make sense in terms of benefiting your reproductive success. You can even make arguments, as Martin Nowak has at Harvard, that if you do computer modeling of things like the prisoner's dilemma, you can come up with motivations for entire groups to behave altruistically toward each other. But a consequence of that, and all the other models that have been put together, is that you still have to be hostile to people who are not in your group. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart as far as the evolutionary drive for successful competition. Well, does that fit? Is that what we see in our own experience? Where are those circumstances where we think the moral law has been most dramatically at work? I would submit they are not when we're being just nice to our family or just nice to people who are going to be nice to us or even just when we're being nice to other people in our own group. 
the things that strike us, that cause us to marvel and to say, that's what human nobility is all about, are when that radical altruism extends beyond those categories. When you see Mother Teresa and the streets of Calcutta picking up the dying, when you see Oscar Schindler risking his life to save Jews from the Holocaust, uh, when you see the Good Samaritan, or when you see Wesley Autry. Wesley Autry, a construction worker, African-American, standing on the subway platform in New York City, and next to him, a young man, a graduate student, went into an epileptic seizure, and to the horror of everybody standing there, the student fell onto the tracks in front of an oncoming train. Uh, With only a split second to make a decision, Wesley jumped onto the tracks as well, pulled the student still having the seizure in that small space in between the tracks, covered him with his own body, and the train rolled over both of them. And miraculously, there was just enough clearance uh, for them both to survive. This was clearly radical altruism. These people were of uh, no acquaintance of each other, had no uh, likelihood of seeing each other in any other circumstance, and belonged to different uh, groups as we seem to define them here in our society, one being African-American, one being white. And yet, New York went crazy, (laughs) and they should. What an amazing act. What an amazing, risky thing to do. Now, evolution would say, Wesley, you what were you thinking? <laughs> Talk about ruining your reproductive fitness opportunity. This is a scandal, isn't it? So think about that. Again, I'm not offering you a proof, but I do think when people try to argue that morality can be fully explained on evolutionary grounds, that's a little bit too easy. That's a little bit too much of a just-so story. And perhaps it might ought to be thought about as potentially having some other reflected uh, reason for its presence. So, Dr. Collins, if I understand what you're saying, this example of radical altruism that has no other basis behind it that would be supportive of uh, evolution, um, that there's got to be something more there, something that is uh, ingrained in our hearts and our souls uh, to do good when there is no expectation of something in return, or it's not to preserve our own children, our own DNA. So tell me a little bit more about why you think that that is another example of why there must be a God, or at least the best reason and logic for it is that the God exists. If you were looking, not just for evidence of a God who was a mathematician and a physicist, but a God who cared about human beings, and who stood for what was good and holy, and wanted his people to also be interested in what is good and holy, wouldn't it be interesting to find written in your own heart this moral law which doesn't otherwise make sense and which is calling you to do just that? That made a lot of sense to me. So after going through these arguments over the course of a couple of years, and it was that long, fighting them, uh, oftentimes wishing that I had never started down this road because it was leading me a place I wasn't sure I wanted to go, I began to realize that I had a certain series of immutable issues that were leading me in the direction of awe, awe of something greater than myself. So, Dr. Collins, you've covered sort of the scientific uh, reasons for the existence of God, and you've sort of gone over to this moral law issue that you know in your heart has some relationship 
to a god's existence, but it's sort of in the area of philosophy more than science. So did you go and and listen to or or study any of the philosophers that may have addressed this point more directly from the philosophical uh, point of view? From Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, two things fill me with constantly increasing admiration and awe. The longer and more earnestly I reflect on them, the starry heavens without and the moral law within. My goodness, that's just where I was. But I had to figure out then, okay, if there is the possibility of this kind of God and a God who cares about humans, what is that God really like? And now it was time to go back to the world's religions and try to figure out what they tell us about that. And as I read through them, now somewhat better prepared, I could see there were great similarities between the great monotheistic religions, and they actually resonated uh, quite well with each other about many of the principles, and I found that quite gratifying and was a bit surprised because I had assumed that they were radically different. But there were differences. Now, about this time, I had also arrived at a point that was actually not comforting, which was the realization that if the moral law was a pointer to God, and if God was good and holy, I was not. And as much as I tried to forgive myself for actions that were not consistent with that moral law, they kept popping up. And therefore, just as I was beginning to perceive the person of God in this sort of blurry way, that image was receding because of my own failures. And I began to despair of whether this would ever be a relationship that I could claim or hope to have because of my own shortcomings. So into this area of the moral law, which you start to see the presence of God in our hearts, you create some uncertainty in your own mind as you delve deeper into that because you had your own uh, failings and you knew that man can't keep that moral law straight for very long, that we all fail and, and sin against that, knowing what's right and what's wrong. If that's in our hearts, how do we deal with those kinds of transgressions? And so what was your answer to this? How did you come about uh, and come back from that receding of the belief that the God had this moral law? How did you deal with that? And into that area of increasing anxiety came the realization that there is a person in one of these faiths who has the solution to that. And that's the person of Jesus Christ, who not only claimed to know God, but to be God, and who in this amazing and incomprehensible at first, but ultimately incredibly sensible, uplifting, sacrificial act, died on the cross and then rose from the dead to provide this bridge between my imperfections and God's holiness in a way that made more sense than I ever dreamed it could. I had heard those phrases about Christ died for your sins, and I thought that was so much gibberish, and suddenly it wasn't gibberish at all. And so, two years after I began this journey, on a hiking trip in the Cascade Mountains up in Oregon, uh, with my mind cleared of those distractions that so often get in the way of realizing what is really true and important, I felt I had reached the point where I no longer had reasons to resist, and I didn't want to resist. I had a hunger to give in to this. And so that day, I became a Christian. That was 31 years ago. 
Doctor, how did you feel at that moment? Because many people have gotten to that moment, and many people who are listening maybe in our audience will ultimately get to that moment where they say there's no reason to resist, there's no reason to argue against. They have the epiphany that there is a God and that Jesus Christ uh, came in human form to save us and to bridge that moral gap that you talked about, or our failings and what and the holiness of God. So how did you feel once you made that decision? And I was scared, and I was afraid I was going to turn into somebody very somber and lose my sense of humor and probably be called to Africa the next week or something. But instead, I discovered this great sense of peace and a joyfulness about having finally crossed that bridge, and also to have done so in a fashion that seemed to live up to my hopes that faith would not be something you had to plunge into blindly, but something where there was, in fact, reason behind the decision. And I guess I should have known, because as I began to learn a bit more about the Bible, I encountered this verse in Matthew, where Jesus is being questioned about which is the greatest commandment in the law. The Pharisees here trying to trap Jesus into saying something they can point out as being inconsistent with the Old Testament. And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Wow, there it was, all your mind. We're supposed to use our minds when it comes to faith. Well, Dr. Collins, we're just about out of time. Can you sort of wrap it up in uh, your thoughts and feelings about this question of is there a God? Put it in some perspective for us and your final conclusions on your scientific review of this question. This is the most important question that we started with, is there a God? My answer to that is yes. I can't prove it, but I think the evidence is fairly compelling. If this is a question that interests you and you haven't necessarily spent a lot of time on it, I would encourage you to. It's probably not one of those you want to put off till the last minute. After all, you might get a pop quiz along the way. And I thank all of you for your kind attention. Dr. Francis Collins, we thank you. You have given us great insights on somebody's path, uh, your testimony of how you went from being an atheist, agnostic, to believing in God, to becoming a Christian. It's a very powerful story that I hope many people in this audience who might be questioning their own situation uh, will take to heart. And all I can say is join us next week for more stories and information and testimonies about the life of Jesus and the resurrection. See you next week. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.